Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the CNS Guidelines Podcast. My name is Brad Elder. I am neurosurgery faculty at The Ohio State University and I am host of the Guidelines Podcast. Uh, my resident co-host tonight is Dr. Brandon Lang. And uh, tonight our topic is uh, the paper entitled Congress of Neurological Surgeons, Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guidelines for Patients with Chiari Malformation, Surgical Intervention. And uh, I have the honor of welcoming the first author of the paper, uh, Dr. Padusapu, with us tonight. And he's going to uh, introduce himself and then give us an overview of of what they did and what they found and what they were looking for and kind of all the nuts and bolts of what went into this. So without further ado, I'll turn the uh, turn the microphone, if you will, over to him. Thank you. I'm uh, Jogi Patisapu, pediatric neurosurgeon in Orlando, Florida, uh, part of the adjunct teaching faculty of University of Central Florida College of Medicine. Been in uh, practice for almost 35, 40 years, but retired now. And I had the honor of working with about 15 people coming up with the guidelines for this one particular issue. You know, Chiari malformation or Arnold Chiari malformation, we hear about it where part of the back part of the brain, the cerebellum, if you will, pushes itself on top of the spinal cord, making it, making it very tight at the neck region. Patients have all kinds of problems, that pain and sometimes problems with curvature in the spine, problems with fluid in the spinal cord, uh, functional problems, et cetera. So the question always comes up is, what's the best way to manage this? And so this is uh, the third of the set of three articles that the team has worked on to say, what is the literature saying? What is out there that we know that we can learn from each other, the entire world literature? And what can we tell people, do this, don't do this? What is good evidence? Things like that. That's the goal of this work. Uh, if I may just expand on what we did, we went through the database for about 75 years, 1948 onward, it's about 2021 or so, and all the English speaking, English literature, and then we gleaned where literature is available to us. Here, whatever we can get a complete analysis of, we went through all of those, and then after thousands of articles, we were able to come up with about 700 articles that 760 articles that met the criteria. Hey, we should look at these articles. They make sense. They were done well. They're written well. They're saying something. Out of those 760 or so, we found 80 articles that really could be and should be analyzed in depth. And that's what we did. A team of us, uh, for this chapter, about six of us, but the whole team had about 15, 16 of us. We went through all the articles word by word and said, what is it that we're trying to say? What is it that's good evidence? So everybody can say, hey, all neurosurgeons do this or don't do this. And if this happens, this is what this means. We tried to answer about five questions. Friends, 
And what we found was that we can make what's called class two evidence, meaning good basic science that we can all rely upon most of the time uh, for one of them. And the others we found what's called class three evidence, meaning it could go either way. And I'll like to explain, explain or expand on that later. But that's the gist of what we did. And what this helps us, all of us, when we have a patient in front of us, should we do an operation with a patch, a pleural patch? Sometimes we put a little patch back there to give the space more spinal fluid circulating space. Uh, should we try to reduce the tissue down there to give it more room? Should we use uh, monitoring in the operating room? Would that help to a better operation? How long should we follow these patients before something needs to be done? These are some of the questions we tried to answer. I hope that's a good starting point, sir, and I'm ready anytime you are for the rest. Sure. Well, maybe what I'll do is um, kind of go through uh, one by one each of these questions and maybe ask if if you could expand on them. So the, the first one that you mentioned was, you know, the type of surgery. And the, the two types that are distinguished in this first question are um, surgery for posterior fossa decompression or surgery with posterior fossa decompression and duraplasty. Can you Tell me what, how do those two types of surgery, how are they distinguished? Um, and what would be, what, what was going into this, I guess, what were thought to be sort of the pros and cons of either of them relative to each other? Well, very interesting point. Most surgeons are left with the option of how to do the best surgery. In other words, if there's compression at the back of the skull at the top of the spinal canal, where the spinal cord or the actual brain is trying to come through and there's not enough room, is it the bone that's causing that compression? And if we just move the bone out of the way, is that adequate? Or that's just part of the problem and you have to actually open up the membrane that covers the spinal cord and brain. We call that dura, D-U-R-A, means tough, tough uh, you know, layer. And we patch it. We patch it with some other tissue from the side of the, well, around the muscle, or we can actually get some dura, artificial dura or real dura from, you know, pigs and et cetera. And we can actually patch that in. And what we then do is we give more room for the area that's been compressed. And there's a big difference. Do you put the patch or do you not put the patch? If we open the dura and put a patch in, the potential complications and the potential implications are met much more. The patient finds it harder, possibility for spinal fluid leak. So therefore, we like to see if we can get, get by without doing that piece. And the literature, what it says is that it doesn't matter which way we do this, the outcomes appear to be relatively the same. Now, we cannot say, hey, neurosurgeon, do it with the patch or do it without the patch. It, the literature says either way, the response rate is about the same. So does that include uh, patients? I mean, were those studies or were there studies, I should ask, that really did a head-to-head -head comparison of the two? Or is this reviewing some literature on one type and some literature on another type? Great. Good point. Uh, we did all three types. In other words, some we just did the bone, some we did the duroplasty only. And some studies actually compared both. Now, the problem we have is that some surgeons or some centers would do it one way and then switch to the other way of doing it 
and then compare before and after what mm -hmm. changes. The ideal study, what we call class one or ideal study that's the best type of literature is a complete randomized trial. In other words, if I were to go need the surgery, the doctor would say, well, we opened an envelope or we flipped a coin and you're gonna get the patch or you're not gonna get the patch. And then you compare all those patients over time to see which is actually the best outcome. That type of study has not been done. It'd be wonderful to do it, but that is not available simply because patients may not necessarily submit to that kind of a random choosing of operation. Did did, um, did any of the preoperative symptoms um, seem to go one way or that? So patients with say neurologic symptoms versus I, and I'm using air quotes that our audience can't hear, of course, but versus only having pain, right? Did did that tend to trend one way or the other in terms of the type of operation? No, sir. Not that we found. I mean, uh, the best I recall is just the types of symptoms uh, were kind of vague, and we cannot say this particular symptom warranted this type of operation. We're hoping to get to something like that even, but the data the literature are not that clear to say a specific recommendation could be made. Mm -hmm. So there's, so, and no, nothing I'm assuming if, if symptoms didn't, didn't, didn't lead to one operation versus another, did any radiographic findings, did you find that, you know, tonsillar herniation beyond, you know, a certain number of millimeters led more commonly to duroplasty or did a syrinx uh, lead more commonly to a duroplasty? Well, in general, uh, patients who had a syrinx or fluid within the spinal cord, people the surgeons tended to use the patch more often. But again, we couldn't say that is the best way because we do have enough literature on the other side to say, even if you don't put a patch, a patient with a syrinx or fluid in the spinal cord also got relief of symptoms. So relief of the presence of a syrinx, the amount of tonsillar herniation, meaning the amount of cerebellum that's pushing on top of the spinal cord coming down, all those things we could not say dural patch or non-patch is a difference. You know, this this wasn't a specific one of the questions, and we'll we'll go further. Our audience, we're going to go through the rest of the questions later, but were, were complication rates uh, higher in the duroplasty group uh, across the literature that, that you read? Yes. You typically, yes, sir. Typically, complications are higher and even more serious because sometimes they have meningitis and etc. Spinal fluid leakage, uh, but we could not say, "Oh my God, the complication rate is so high, therefore we should avoid the patch." That mm. is something we were looking for. We could say, "Is the complication rate something it'll stop us from considering that?" But no, the amount of benefit and the small incidence of complications—it's not much. It's like a little over one to two percent. It's basically it's not something that'll preclude using a patch. So we don't tell the you know the, the literature here and our article doesn't say don't do the patch because of the risk of complication. I hope that answers your question. Yes. No, that that was helpful. Um the um so I'm gonna get to some of these other questions um before we uh get too far there, uh, with this topic. But you mentioned so so a, a subset of the patients that have the patch will uh, potentially have also undergone cerebellar tonsillar reduction. Uh, and 
the, so your second question is, in patients with QRI malformation, is cerebellar tonsil reduction beneficial? So um, the, the recommendation is that the surgeons may perform the resection slash reduction of cerebellum. How do, how do you get to the language of may perform? Excellent. That's uh, something that you just uh, put down about four to six weeks of discussions among 15 of us down to a few words. The, the way we arrived at that, sir, is simple. Given a choice of what can be done, the guidelines are supposed to lead somebody saying this is an option, this is a possibility, but we don't want to be saying this is a better way of doing it or this is the best way of doing it because we don't have the support of the literature. When we say may perform, it means that it's a good idea or it's an idea that's out on the table. It equally means you may not perform it. In other words, you may perform it, I may not perform it, and somebody else you know, may choose to do one or the other. What that gives us is an understanding of the current literature. It also raises the point that we need to study this more closely, and hopefully going forward in five or 10 years, some of these issues we raised we'll be able to get some more definitive answers in the literature. As a little bit of an aside, uh, what percent, say, of, if you look at the last five years, what percent of these surgeries that happen have cerebellar tonsil reduction? And is that something that is increasing in in this uh, in this surgery? Is it something you think is stable, decreasing over, over say, the last 20 years? A hint we got was that in children, probably not as often. Um, and uh, a point you alluded to earlier was that uh, how much of a tonsillar herniation, how tight is that space? And uh, if you were to open the dura and look inside uh, the, the covering to the spinal cord and brain, and you see that that tissue is very crowded or looks actually abnormal because it's been compressed for so long. It doesn't even look like normal tissue anymore. It's something that is just there to cause trouble. Mm -hmm. They may lead you to consider decompressing. Literature-wise, when, when you write these statements and you say things, we have to go back and say the data support, meaning enough authors have studied this so well that you should do it or should not do it. Mm -hmm. That part we could not. Therefore, the may perform comes in. We're gonna we're gonna click a couple other uh, may performs or may be used for for completeness sake for our, our listeners. So, is there a role for intraoperative neuromonitoring? And this was may may be used. And so, my understanding then of of your most recent explanation is that there is not strong enough evidence to tell tell us that we should use it, but there's also not necessarily strong enough evidence to tell us you should not use that. Is yeah. am I interpreting that that correctly? So it's very similar to before. Is were there were the was the literature on this topic uh, intended to be about neuromonitoring, or was this something that was noticed as an aside when reading the rest of the papers? No, this was uh, a pre-planned question. We actually had planned on looking at this. Went to the literature, not just our neurosurgical, but other. The neuromonitoring people. In fact, I called up my consultants in the operating room and discussed their views and their literature as well. Uh, if we didn't have those articles, we made sure we brought those articles into our fold. The best thing we found, my friend, is that 
during positioning, because a patient has to be lying on their stomach with their neck really, really bent down onto their chest. I mean, flexion, we call it. So the chin is really you know, touching the, chin, uh, the chest. At that time, the, the compression that the patient has could actually cause worsening problems. There were some studies that said, hey, this is a potential place where the monitoring may help. Again, it's a few papers. It doesn't, it was not reproducible. It doesn't say all of them that did it said, this is where we need to pay, you know, this way it really made a difference. So it's a hint that we noticed. A lot of people, uh, including myself for decades, did this without any monitoring. So I cannot tell you that I made things better or worse during surgery. There are some specific times when the uh, changes in the neuromonitoring are noted. And for that, if somebody's used to that, somebody needs it, it's a very important thing to say, look, before I operated, this is what the situation was. As soon as I released the bone, which is most commonly, or if I opened the dura, the potentials changed. That's useful information for that patient and that doctor in that case. But we cannot generalize that that's what needs to be done. Uh, I'm going to just step back a little bit and add a couple more caveats to this. Sure may perform and may use. Uh, friends, this is literature that is done in a very, very reputable journal. And it's, uh, some people carry this as a dogma. You know, I read articles for the 40 years I've been you know, doing all this and studying, and we quote these articles. If you imagine that not everybody around the world, around the world has all of these access, has all this equipment, we have to be careful that somebody there will say, wait a minute, I didn't get the best surgery because the article said do this and you didn't do it. So with that in mind, we have to be careful that what is the average common sense approach that the neurosurgeon who means best for his or her patient is able to offer, should offer, and where does the literature support it? If the literature doesn't support it 100%, for example, they double-blinded study, we can't say you must do this. That's where the, the, the gentleness in the language comes. That's that's an excellent point uh, that, that you made, uh, and I appreciate that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, touch on the last two questions here. Um, the uh, first one is in patients with a uh, syrinx, so curing malformation and syrinx, how long should you wait to evaluate for syrinx reduction before additional surgery? And this also received a may perform additional intervention in six to 12 months. So there's, there is a, a may perform, but there's also a more, much more specific suggestion that if after six to 12 months, you haven't seen radiographic resolution, and I'm assuming also neurologic symptoms resolution, that you should start considering, hey, this might be the time that maybe the surgery we did before isn't going to lead to resolution and we should reinvestigate. Can I ask, in, in your experience reading the literature, what were those neurosurgical interventions in that six to 12 month range? Were these, well, I'll let you go ahead. I wanna. <laughs> well, uh, good point. You bring up a very subtle, but very appropriate thinking here. Thank you. Uh, once again, I must say, this is literature search from you know 1948. I mean, before CAT scans, before MRI scans. And a lot of times when these were done, believe me, we actually went back and looked at myelogram reports. So you have to, myelograms, we put dye into the spinal fluid to see where it's compressed. So we have 
so many changes in medicine, just like life. I mean, it's like all of us. How did life look like before cell phones, before internet, before microwaves, before color TV? That's what all this is. So some people have said, hey, listen, we, we, we did the surgery, possibly just the bone decompression only, the PFD, we called it, as opposed to the duroplasty or the dural patch or the PFDD, uh, double D. And then you go back and say, wait a minute, I did the operation as I thought was the best thing to do back in the 97 or 2004. And now the patient's still having issues and the MRI scan show, shows a large syrinx or fluid in the spinal canal. And this literature says, hey, you know what? Yes, if it's been more than six or 12 months, yes, you can probably go back and consider looking at that or opening it up and giving it. Why? Because fluid buildup in the spinal cord over long term can probably, will probably lead to some trouble. Patients who are having symptoms and there's a cyst or fluid in the spinal cord, syrinx in the spinal cord, and it's been a year, the literature says, yeah, probably should go back and redo it. Maybe there's scarring. We looked into that as well. Uh, can we define the amount of scarring that happened? The mm -hmm. literature didn't help us there. Maybe they should redo the patch, give it more room, things like that. I hope that or, answers. Or if there, the maybe if there wasn't a patch to do a patch or, yes, sir. or exactly. was any of the literature, did it involve syringo, subarachnoid, or shunts? Oh, yes. We looked at all those as well. But the numbers were so small. Right. And you cannot compare apples to apples. And if you don't do that, you know, we're not, we, we had to put some of those aside because the numbers were small. The literature was a little bit all over the place. And it was difficult to make a statement that would stick that we have to defend and somebody else has to defend because they're going to use that statement in caring of a patient. That was, uh, this is great. So I'm going to let uh, Brandon uh, introduce himself and then uh, maybe ask a question or two. Hi, my name is Brandon Lang. I am a six-year resident at the Medical College of Wisconsin out in Milwaukee. Um, so I had a couple questions here. First question. So, you know, given that, you know, you should wait six to 12 months to actually reoperate, is there any utility in getting imaging before that period? since either way, you're not really going to, you know, you're not going to reoperate if you see that the syrinx is persistent. Is there any, was there any insight to that? Well, the literature suggests that a lot of the surgeons image their patient within three months after surgery. You know, not the immediate first post-operative visit, but the second visit, they would usually do that. That's what the literature says. We're mm -hmm. not going to say do or don't, because not everybody did it. Like you said, people like to probably wait six or 12 months. So why bother putting a patient to an MRI scan, much less the expense. The reason was, my friend, is that there were incidences where the syrinx would come down immediately post-operatively, meaning within three months. And then later on, it recurred or it became mm. larger again. That's yeah. also telling us a story. So you want to catch some of those because that also helps you make a decision what that means. If the patient got better and the syrinx got smaller, and later on, the syrinx got bigger, but the patient's not having symptoms or is having symptoms. How you'd approach that would certainly help you dictate. We looked into that. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, and a second question, was there any difference in uh, 
you know, in complication rates and patients who underwent tonsillar manipulation versus those that didn't? Very excellent point. Uh, again, tonsillar manipulation or tonsillar shrinkage basically is that amount of cerebellum that came down through the skull base on top of the spinal cord that's actually compressing. As I mentioned earlier, if you opened the dura and you did a, trying to do a dural patch and you looked at that compression, we know that that tissue is non-functional. That tissue is, uh, though it's made of brain tissue, it's not connected to anything. And because of whatever happened to that, previous studies have shown us that that is probably, you know, we can't use the word scar tissue, but it's non-functional brain tissue, gliosis. We end up uh, shrinking it just by taking our coagulation and making it smaller and smaller, or you can actually resect it, just take that tissue out. The literature did not give us enough to make a sentence in this thing, but it's interesting to note, and we also know this from 30, 40 years of being in the operating room, that when you shrink the tonsils or you actually operate or you manipulate that tissue, you're more likely to release some of that tissue cells, the coagulation debris, and there is a slight, a very slight increase in sense of what we call chemical meningitis, the irritation to the brain. It's not a bacterial infection like we talk about word meningitis. It's just that area is irritated. But friends, that it's more of something we read along the lines where we could not say yes or no or make a note of it. It's an observation because you asked the question and just to be complete, I'll answer it that way but it's not something you'd want to put in the literature where somebody says, oh my God, reducing tonsillar herniation causes problems for the patient. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you. Yes, those are, uh, Brandon, those are excellent questions. We're getting a little low on time. I'm going to ask one or two more questions. The first one is regarding timing. So I've seen patients uh, whose symptoms seem to have started within the past month or two. And I've mm -hmm. seen patients who you know, oh, for 20 years, I've had these horrible symptoms. And finally, I, somebody did a scan and found a QRA1 malformation. Was there, in, in, in your readings, did the timing of symptom onset relative to surgery influence outcomes? Uh, that was covered in one of our earlier chapters, though I did not address all that literature directly. I was in the conversations. Uh, the best I can tell you, sir, is that the correlation is weak that, you know, naturally nobody wants patients to go through a lot of pain or a lot of symptoms, but we cannot say with clarity that, aha, a patient who has uh, symptoms for six months, eight months, two months should have this done, should not have that done. Uh, there is a uh, concern, but I'm not going to say there's a correlation. And this was addressed more deeply in the previous chapters. Well, Sounds like we may need to do another podcast at some point. But the last question I'll ask you is, uh, what did we miss? What information would you like to tell us and our listeners um, that we maybe should have asked and didn't? On today's discussion, sir? Correct. The most important thing I would like to make sure all of us understand, all of us, the listeners, you, me, the whole bunch. Why do we do this? What is the purpose and what is the meaning of this? The best thing to say is every once in a while, it's okay to stop and look back and say, where have I come? Where am I going? What is the essence of what's in front of me? We all are too busy sometimes as neurosurgeons, doctors, and lives. We have to stop and say, what is the entire literature telling us? What is the guidance we can get from 
comparing articles from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And can we learn from that? Can we look at it and say, are they able to answer questions? This process starts off with asking questions first and then seeking answers. So it's not like we did a literature search looking for things. We actually had questions in our hand that we went and tried to answer. So the questions we tried to answer could only be answered partly. That's where the class two, class three evidence comes in. But what we did note naturally is that we don't have exact comparison class one data, meaning every patient was randomized and then we could tell which is the better set. In surgery, that is extremely hard to do to get a randomized control trial. We know that. But having said that, we learned that this is the current state. We put a finger on the pulse and we kind of say, going forward, we can answer these questions. Based on this, the next set of questions can be answered easier. Thanks. That was fantastic. I want to uh, end here. Uh, we've we've run slightly long, so I appreciate everybody putting in a few minutes of overtime for the podcast. Um, I want to thank um, our my guest host and our our uh, guest uh, author for joining us today. And specifically, I want to thank I, I always want to thank our guidelines authors uh, for their tireless work in bringing guidelines projects to fruition. Uh, for our listeners, please check the CNS website regularly for updated guidelines, topics, and podcasts. And with that, I'll bid everyone a good day. Thank you.